Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. Good afternoon, everybody. Thank you very much uh, for being here. My name is Tom Powers. I'm the curator of Doc Club. Um, uh, Sundance Now is Doc Club. If you want to find out more information about it, you can go over that table right over there. I also program documentaries for the Toronto International Film Festival and Doc NYC Festival in November. Uh, I'm very uh, pleased to be here. So Doc Club is um, hosting three panels here at Sundance TV House headquarters uh, today. On Monday, uh, they're all at noon, by the way. On Monday, we'll be here with a panel called Black Lives on Film. And on Wednesday, we'll be here with a panel called Documenting Celebrities, all with great uh, filmmakers on those. And there's uh, postcards you can pick up um, to uh, learn more about those panels. And, and every day here at noon, there are other panels going on. I'm only telling you about the ones that I'm moderating, because um, that's my style. Um, so uh, sh uh, short films are the new long. Um, this, is, uh, the, this panel came to be because I have definitely noticed in the last few years a, a dramatic increase in the opportunities for documentary filmmakers to be putting out short films. I would say just five years ago, short, the documentary film world for short films was mainly filmmakers making films on their own steam. Um, they would bring them to a festival uh, like Sundance and, and other festivals where there'd be a showcase. If you're really lucky, maybe a channel like HBO uh, would buy them, and there aren't that many other channels uh, that, uh, that were buying them. And then there wasn't that you know, much you know, uh, uh, other place for, for a short to go. You, know, you could put it up for free on uh, YouTube, perhaps. Well, today, it's an entirely uh, different landscape. Um, uh, we see all kinds of brands uh, getting in heavy into the short film uh, 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 format. So I think of uh, New York Times Opdocs. I think of uh, ESPN's uh, 30 for 30 uh, shorts. I think of uh, Condé Nast, the uh, publisher that uh, does magazines like The New Yorker, Vanity Fair, uh, and Vogue. Um, they have, a, if you uh, have an Apple TV and, uh, and go on, you'll see a, a new uh, widget on your Apple TV called The Scene, which is full of Condé Nast's uh, short film programming. In fact, I heard from um, someone today about a, a, a bidding war over a short uh, documentary uh, here at Sundance. I don't, I don't know if that's been uh, released yet, so I won't say anything more about it. But there is, uh, there's definitely a lot happening. Um, so what I want to do with this panel is um, bring in uh, a Sundance uh, short film programmer and three filmmakers who uh, you probably would know best for uh, their long form uh, work. They're all uh, terrific uh, recognized filmmakers. They've all had, um, uh, I think, more than one film here 
uh, at the Sundance Film Festival. And uh, let me bring up the panelists right now, and then I'll introduce them while they're on stage. Come up here, panelists. Um, so, uh, sitting right next to me is uh, Lucy Walker. Uh, Lucy has made uh, feature-length documentaries like uh, The Crash Reel, uh, Wasteland, um, and last year she was here with a short called The Lion's Mouth Opens, um, which is going to be on HBO uh, soon. Um, and, uh, and that's Lucy Walker. Uh, next to Lucy is Katie Metcalf, who's part of the uh, Sundance uh, short film programming team. She uh, startled me today saying that there are 10 people who program uh, short films uh, at the Sundance Film Festival. Uh, next to Katie is Heidi Ewing, uh, who's part of the team, uh, often working in her partnership with Rachel Grady. Um, a big film she had here at, that they had here at Sundance uh, a couple of years ago was Detropia. Um, and, and I think you wound up kind of excerpting some of the material on Detropia for a New York Times uh, op docs. And uh, I'm going to ask you to talk about it later. You're here at Sundance this year with the, with, uh, the Sundance Short Film Challenge. Um, and I'll ask you to talk more about that at the end. Um, uh, sitting next to Heidi is Eugene Jarecki, who's uh, been to Sundance with films like The House I Live In. This year, he is the executive producer of the film Terror, playing in the U.S. documentary competition, uh, which I think uh, debuts today. And uh, I urge you to look out for that one. Um, uh, and uh, Eugene has um, been doing a lot of very interesting short film work that I'll um, get him to talk about, uh, well, right now. Uh, uh, Eugene, let me, let me start with you, because I, I think uh, I've heard you talk about your experiences of moving from long-form to, to short-form work, and, uh, and it's really stayed with me. So uh, can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, nice to see everybody. I, uh, some years ago, in between making one film or another where... I'm very aware that I, I make films that are contentious with aspects often of the American system, whether it's our, our political system, economic system, military system, or otherwise. I got the very troubling feeling that um, somebody said to me, well, do you have security concerns about your life with the people you try to anger? And I said, well, you know, honestly, um, I don't. I think I'd be flattering myself to think that I do because I think that would mean that I was making a level of impact that was worth hurting me over. In fact, I get the opposite sensation sometimes that for those who control the status quo, those of us who make these films very often are sort of in a certain way a kind of benefit, uh, a weird kind of calculated loss where I think if there is a central command station somewhere that's ruining the world for us, um, they are thinking to themselves, let Heidi, let Lucy, let Eugene make these kind of films that criticize aspects of the system because they're really not going to have an impact that's going to hurt us. But while they do it, what a brave new world that hath such creatures in it. It lets us advertise ourselves as being the democracy we pretend to be. Princeton University said two weeks ago that America's not a democracy. They don't like that kind of information at Central Command. So what they want is us to go around with these kind of vanity pieces, these long-form films that are, that are all about, all too often, getting pat on the back. You're a great man. You focused on a subject, and what a hard-hitting thing. And dangerously, I wondered about the actual impact and whether that calculated loss that I represent, it's like a line item in the budget thinking, let him knock himself out, it'll entertain some lefties and we'll all be wiser for it and nothing will change. So I tried to figure out strategies to get underneath that system and how could I um, do what was not expected and be um, 
uh, and be more scrappy about it and, and go a little bit under the radar. And that became the making of little short films. And, and in many ways, when that was starting in my life, it felt like a personal demotion. It, ha it meant that I had to kiss goodbye for a period of two or three years now, the vanity and the, and the, the self-reinforcement that comes with making longer work, that feels like it's part of what we all idealize about the silver screen tradition, and that has its place, and it's a beautiful aspect of the American experience and the global experience, but there's no question that doing the short films was suddenly loaded for bear, and it was made, the moment was there, because we have this revolution in dissemination technologies, which meant that if you were going to try to go for the jugular of certain aspects of the contemporary condition, rather than making a big vein film that would take a very long time and perhaps speak deep truths, you might be able to put out very fast brush fires. Instead of building that large firehouse and, and then epically looking at its grandeur, you might be saying, I'm just gonna go after that law. I'm just gonna hit stop and frisk in New York City, or I'm just gonna to deal with the lunch program, just going to deal with this healthcare absurdity. And that has proven in certain cases we've seen in recent years to gain traction fast, like the difference between a pamphlet and a book. And I can talk more about our specifics, but it was that uh, accepting that I would lose some vanity, but I would probably gain a sense of traction that I wasn't getting in the other world. And let me, before we move on to other people, I want to ask specifically, because I think I've heard you describe an epiphany moment was you did this short called Move Your Money after the 2008 uh, economic uh, uh, collapse. Can you just talk about that experience? So um, I had dinner uh, Christmas uh, 2010 with Ariana Huffington and a couple of people for Christmas. It was a strange Christmas Eve night. I don't know how I ended up at that table. It's like a joke, the beginning of a joke. Um, but there we are having dinner, and up came the banking crisis. Where is the outrage? And I said, the incredible thing here is it's a lot like It's a Wonderful Life. It's crazy. Like, George Bailey is the community banker. We all love community banking. We all believe in the guy who's invested in the community and knows your name and helped you build your house and keep your kid out of trouble. But then when it comes to our everyday practices, we keep our money with monsters who are too big to fail. So where is the outrage would be well serviced by a little short that would take It's a Wonderful Life, remind people that it's the holidays, remind them that they're going to love George Bailey and they're going to hate Mr. Potter. Why don't we put out a short that reminds them of that and says, and if you love George Bailey and you hate Mr. Potter, get your money away from Potter. And so we made that short, and the buoy came. It was very, very popular, very fast, as buoyed by, by Ariana. And that's crucial to mention, because I wasn't just a guy in his attic in Wichita. I was being armed by some force, and that has to be reminded. Otherwise, there's sort of a, well, how did it happen factor. Um, only kittens who play the piano get magic viral life. The rest of us <laughs> don't. So you need a friend in the carpet business. And I had Ariana, so she puts it up. Well, that caught Colbert's vision. Colbert brings me on, and he does a show about this where the first thing he does is makes a parody of my video in which he makes it clear that you could cut It's a Wonderful Life also to say that George Bailey is a predatory, suicidal maniac terrorizing a small town and the beneficent Mr. Par Mr. Potter is bailing people out. Well, I don't think that message was felt by people because we got the Colbert bump and all of a sudden that thing went viral and about four million people have moved their money out of the major banks. Sounds like an impressive statistic, right? Four million people have moved their money out of the major banks. But what that will produce here is a whole lot of soul searching about where that number comes from and how believable that number is and whether that number is in four times too high or ten times too high. I'm going to say I think it's ten times too high. It came out of the people who were then monitoring it for us and providing the public, sh shifting information. But basically, let's say 
it's, it's 10 times too high. That's 400,000 people who took money out of a major bank. I have never had that much impact in practical terms on the human race with any long form movie I've ever made. And that movie took four days to make for four people. That's 16 man days. My Reagan film, which I was making for HBO at the same time, was five people for three years in a core team, 15 man years, to adjust the way we think of a former president versus 16 man days to move 400,000 people's money. You're so going to you're gonna go. kill the feature I'm documentary done. market right yes, now, forever. It's over. I still love Everyone movies does. the most. <laughs> um, so Lucy, uh, let me ask you about your experience. Um, so uh, the shorts I think of, uh, of you making, you made a film called The Tsunami and the Cherry Blossom uh, a couple years ago. And then last year, you made this incredibly uh, moving film, uh, The Lion's Mouth Opens, that has uh, won a number of awards. Uh, maybe I should just ask you to say briefly what The Lion's Mouth Opens is for people who haven't seen it. Oh, yeah, Lion's Mouth Opens is um, a uh, very simple, short film. I always encourage my friends who are film school teachers or film students to watch it because it's so. it was done so um, with such a small footprint. It was me and... Uh, uh, DP and I was doing sound and uh, an editor who was the first thing he'd ever cut, he was actually our assistant editor on the crash reel and a friend of mine. So it was just a really tiny um, team um, and a really good reminder that if you have a incredible people and story and pick your moments about when you film and have a really good DP and a tolerable sound mixer or sound recordist, which is what I am, adequate uh, at best. Um, but if you can do that, then you can have um, a uh, really riveting short film that just won Best Short Film at the Cinema Eye Honours, which we're really incredibly uh, uh, honoured uh, about. Um, and so that was um, something that was just a moment um, about uh, an amazing young woman, Mariana Palka, who goes to get tested for a disease which she has a 50% chance of getting, Huntington's disease, which is the most horrifying disease I've ever heard of and is fatal and incurable. Um, uh, but I've made lots of films, and I, uh, I think when she originally thought of, she came to me with this idea that we should film, and I was so moved by what she was going through, I agreed, and it was impossible to know what was going to happen, because we didn't know what was going to happen in her medical results by definition. So rather than get too far ahead of ourselves, I just thought, well, let's just start. And then it made a great short. And then people were always saying, now, well, are you going to keep going and make a feature? And actually, I think the trick would be to keep making shorts, kind of installments. But also last year, I made a six-minute film about David Hockney that lives on the LACMA website. Um, and I've made all kinds of um, films uh, from short to long, um, three minutes to... Um, uh, in 107 was my longest, the crash reel. And um, I feel like I have the perfect formula for how long a film should be. How long should a short film be? Or a long film, any film, um, including a five-hour film, I think should be 15 seconds short of boring. I think that holds for everything. And I think we, we just people get so attached to this feature length. And um, people are always saying about my short films, why didn't you make it a feature? My film, Tsunami, the Cherry Blossom, uh, people keep saying, why don't you make a feature? And I was like, because there was not enough story. And I really liked it at that length. I think it played perfectly. And um, it is tough with the economics. I think it's getting easier. I think there are more um, opportunities it used to be. Uh, my film, Tsunami the Cherry Blossom, I owe money on having not paid myself. And it, it was nominated for the Academy Award. It 
got sold to HBO in several territories around the world. Like it was, and I couldn't have made it more cheaply and somehow I still owe money on it, which I still can't quite fathom. Um, uh, but I try not to think about it too much because I, I, I feel so you know, grateful that we made it. But, um, but I think the economics are getting better. But uh, apart from the economic argument from the creative point of view and from the impact point of view, from the watchability, from the audience point of view, I think there's no question that the film should be as long. And to make a feature film, you've got to have so much story. You've, the life, there's so much going on. People are not wowed by the general experience of watching a feature film. They need, it needs to be so, the, the, the bar for feature documentaries is so high now. The feature docs, for example, here, I've just seen, Three, and I feel like any of them could be Academy nominees in uh, in, in a year. Um, the, the quality of long films is so uh, incredibly high these days that you have to you have to have the most important, huge topic and amazing access and amazing um, developments and twists and stuff. So Heidi, let me ask you about that. About well, like what makes a good short film? You and Rachel have made several short films. And actually, to start this conversation, tell me a little bit about the one that you've, you have here at Sundance, which I think is playing on Wednesday. Yeah, Wednesday, 4 o'clock at the holiday. You must come see them. It's 71 minutes of shorts. There's nine films. Um, the one we have, it's part of the, this interesting experimental thing that the Gates Foundation and uh, Sundance Institute has done called the uh, Sundance Short Film Challenge. I think they took submissions from all over the world, and they chose their favorite shorts. And then they commissioned four professional filmmakers... Rachel and I are in the professional category, Tom. Um, we have, uh, Rachel and I did one. That's right, we were, it was a commission. Um, Diego Luna did one, Gael Garcia Bernal, Mariana Rivas, and Rachel and I. It was interesting because they um, put out a call for ideas and people all over the world could submit an idea, like 140 characters or something for a short film. Sounded like a nightmare to me, like, you know, okay, submit your idea. And then we got to choose our, our favorite one of the finalists and then we had to execute a film based on this idea. So our film playing um, on Wednesday is about a rec center in Philly, um, which has converted itself into this global pen pal. It's a very sweet film. You should, you should come see them all. So that's what we have here. But you know, Rachel and I are co-directors. We work frequently together. And I'll speak for myself, but I, I came into the short world kicking and screaming. Um, Freakonomics, I think, was the first short we'd done. We, we all we did this film called Freakonomics, and five of us each did a short. 20 minutes shorter. Alex's was 40. But um, anyway. So the rest of ours were short. That's right. So uh, in any case, it wasn't like something I've ever... For you know, Alex, that is a short film. Yeah. I know. Poor Gibney. Um, so in any case, we, uh, that was our first experience with that. And since then, we've been asked, people keep asking us, well, would you like to do a short? And OpDocs calls, and have you got anything for a short? And personally, I, you know, having come from the feature world where we're used to, feature doc world, where we're used to spending three, four, five years making a film, happily so, because in the end, we feel that it's worth it. It's you're waiting for the third act, etc. Um, I'm, I'm kind of coming around because um, certain things, there's an urgency to certain stories. We made a film called Twelfth in Delaware in 2010. It premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. It was commissioned by HBO. It was played on HBO. Um, very few people saw that film. I think it's probably our best work. Um, it's about an abortion clinic in, in a locked battle with a crisis pregnancy center, which would be a, fo a, fa a false abortion clinic, where women think they're in an abortion clinic and they're a pro-life front. In any case, we spent two years making that film, um, and we both got sick making the film because it was so wretched to be um, on the street corner with these terrible things happening. Very proud of the film. And not a lot of people saw that film. And then, like last year, Vice comes out, and they're like, Vice, 
Crisis Pregnancy Center, do you know what it is? Three minutes, graphics and music and everyone's crying. I'm like, holy shit. I was like, did they steal? I mean, they didn't steal. It's a free world. They'd seen our movie, but they have millions of hits and people were mad. And people in their 20s who'd never heard of a crisis pregnancy center, who don't have HBO Go, who don't come to Sundance, they saw that, they know about that. And I think, damn, maybe that should have been a short. I'm so proud of the feature work. But maybe during that production, we should have said, hey, HBO, let's do a three-minute version. Let's get it out there now. Let's enrage people. Let's try to affect legislation. Let's." We didn't. It wasn't, that was 2010. I think differently now. I think when there's urgency, maybe they should be shorts. When something like Detropia, which is, which is a film about the city of Detroit, it's a, it's a film that I think is a moment in time in this country, and it needed the time it took, and I'm happy that it's a feature, and it, it sort of, it's a slow-moving film, it sinks in, people get, you know, catch, catch it when they can, it's still relevant years later. I'm happy that that stayed in its format, even though we actually... Heidi, if you had made a short film, you could have saved Detroit. Tom and I are both from Detroit. We have different feelings about the city. In any case, so, so yeah, I'm kind of coming around about it. And uh, we've, we're being asked increasingly to do a lot of shorts. Just one last thing. I, I didn't answer questions, but that's okay. Um, the one thing I want to say is that um, we're getting asked. Uh, it's, I don't know if it's a disturbing thing. I can't. I'll report back later. Uh, a lot of corporations um, are offering us a lot of money to make short documentaries. And so far, we have said no to most of them. We've done one. We seemed to go okay. There was no note. There were no notes. Um, it's a slippery slope, you know. There are people that are like, here's one hundred fifty thousand dollars, or here's two hundred thousand dollars, to make a short. And um, hmm, you don't like this. We're documentary filmmakers, and they they oh, it's not advertising. It's a documentary. So I, there's definitely this trend, and I think we should keep our eye on it because you know when you do advertising, you do a commercial, you do advertising with your eyes open. There's this little like middle ground and I think everyone's trying to uh, utilize our, our medium, our popular medium to, uh, for, to their own ends and that might be okay to a certain point but the jury for me is out on that and I'll keep you posted because that is happening to us more and more and it's getting a little confusing. Okay, I'm gonna come back to you later on the question that I originally okay, asked. No uh, Katie, uh, you and your programming team at Sundance Film Festival uh, sifted through how many short submissions this year? Uh, 8,000. And uh, how many of those are documentaries, do you know? I don't actually know the exact figure, but I mean, maybe a third. And um, so t is, is this year different than other years, or uh, is it t in put in context? Of, in terms of submissions, uh, we are seeing a lot more films um, coming to us that have been paid for by uh, news outlets, online news outlets. So we've got, so things like OpDocs and um, ESPN. We have an ESPN short um, playing at the festival this year. Um, there's also a um, Dazed, Dazed and Confused magazine has set up an online um, uh, channel called Dazed Digital, and they're commissioning a lot of work. So we had a big influx of, of films from them this year. Um, and it's interesting because I think there's less of a development process with those shorts. I mean, I don't know because I've, I've not made a film, but it feels as if um, there's a lot of freedom being given to filmmakers um, from these new platforms. So we're seeing a lot more experimental work, a lot more works really sort of pushing boundaries. Um, and I guess it, it, it's natural in the time frame that the work's more current and of the moment because there's less production time. So you've got work that's being produced a lot quicker. Um, and what makes a Sundance short with this growth of uh, potential? And we've, you know, we've heard some people describe 
different modes of shorts, uh, from shorts that are you know, real advocacy pieces like Eugene talks about to shorts like Heidi talks about that are maybe you know promotional branded uh, pieces. Um, there's reportage. There's the kind of thing that uh, Heidi described Vice doing. Out of this uh, landscape, what makes a Sundance short? Well, it's hard. I, do, I don't want to say a Sundance short because I don't. I don't want to, you know, create a band a short that like plays a, at the Sundance Film Festival. <laughs> I'm asking um, you all the questions I hate to get asked yeah. as a programmer, <laughs> so it's a real pleasure for me. Um, I mean, we all we the mo the most important thing for us is the story, and also that it's a film that's come from somewhere original. And we we really want to be just blown away. We want to see something we've never seen before, and. Um, we, we are seeing a lot more work, work of that kind. Um, and, I mean, uh, I think of Sundance, Sundance shorts. <laughs> That's a mean question. <laughs> are they extra quirky? I think, I think what you just said is interesting. I had this amazing uh, professor at film school who was probably my biggest influence. I don't know if anyone went to NYU and heard of Boris Fruman. Usually, nobody? Okay, well he's kind of a legend at NYU. He's this um, uh, Lithuanian uh, professor that made everyone cry, but he was so influential for me and he made us go shoot video every week and come back and then he'd uh, just tear it apart shot by shot. And then in the second year, he'd make us tear each other's work apart shot by shot. That was the kind of the progression of the class, but it was, he was really good and you'd have to go shoot some shots and bring them in. And he'd... Um, uh, he, he was he, he had these he had a thick um, accent which other people can mimic much better than I can, um, but uh, for good work often things he would say would be strange lyrical never before never before seen on film. Now if you can imagine that with a Lithuanian accent, um, strange lyrical never before seen on film. If he saw a shot and I think that's sort of really interesting because it's what you've just said. And then what he hated was bad, boring, generic. Um, I don't believe it. Bad, boring, generic, I don't believe it. And um, I, so I sort of still have these descriptions in my head about when I'm looking for a shot that really is worth including in a movie. And, I, and um, it just really reminded me of what you said. And I think that's, it, it is sort of, you want to have your mind blown. And actually, I think with short films, you can do that much. I love it. I think it's an, ex and it's a chance, you know, to grow and keep challenging ourselves and not get stuck in a kind of rut. And it's so, if you have one film that people like, the pressure is to kind of keep re reproducing the work and it's not um, what, you know, we have to keep challenging ourselves and keep discovering new techniques and the form is changing, the technology is changing and shorts are such a great um, opportunity to um, grow and um, uh uh, and I can't recommend them highly enough, just as a sort of like, um, I challenge myself constantly. It's with an these exercise things. almost. I mean, if you, if, when we're making our feature docs, it's like, you know, you're living in the void for years and you've got this like giant jigsaw puzzle of like 50,000 pieces and it's, it's a lonely, long experience and there's not that satisfaction with a short. You can get feedback so much quicker. But also making a short, it's a tiny puzzle with maybe six or seven pieces, but just as difficult. We've found that I feel like you have to do a lot more shooting than you'd suspect to make an excellent short. I think the expectation is that there's going to be more twists, more turns, more different setups. The visuals need to change. I don't think you can rely... It's, our, our experience has been we uh, find it a challenge to um, sort of keep 
a little tiny three-act structure in six or ten minutes, I think rules of storytelling still do apply. You can have one scene and make it a film, but it's, to me it's a scene. It's an excerpt. It might not be a film. It's like everyone has their different definitions, you know? So we've um, actually, it's, it, these are sort of these bite-sized um, filmic exercises, and it is like um, little film schools, and it's nice. And it's, we do them several times a year now, and it does work a different muscle that you do not work when you're making a feature-length documentary, and that is, uh, as an artist, um, that's been actually just fun for us to do. Because the minutes really count with the short, oh, yeah. and I think that's the thing is when we're in the program, you know, in the programming room looking at the shorts, we always our biggest complaint is that could have just been five minutes shorter oh, yeah. or just a couple of minutes shorter, and they well, would have nailed badge, it. Especially young filmmakers or new filmmakers, yeah. uh, new and young, um, there there's this like. Even people making features, they're like, how long should my movie be? Shouldn't it be 90? Will I not be taken seriously if my film's at 90 minutes? And I'm like, girl, that's the wrong way this to movie might, start. maybe, I, it shouldn't be 70 minutes. You know? So, but same in shorts, I think. You know, I taught a class at Georgetown, my alma mater, a couple years ago, and the teacher was like, it's a short film class, and so everyone's required to turn in a film between 11 and 15 minutes. I said, if I'm teaching, um, that is not going to be. That, that is so long for students to make 15 good minutes. I barely can do it. We've been doing it for 15 years. I was like, we're not doing that. And they're all too long. And it's true. It's like, you know, some people, oh, it's just five minutes. I can knock it out. I'm like, that's a long time. It can be, a, mm. pro programmers much, must find it interminable five minutes sometimes. <laughs> so it's, it's a different kind of brain. Can I pick up on something Lucy said? Um, you know, she mentioned the sort of idea, I think it was 15 seconds short of boring, which is great. Um, it seems to me that we have enough problems with the digital age, which is confronting us with life-warping realities that we didn't imagine would be true in our lifetimes, that are changing matters of privacy, changing matters of the commercialization of life, <coughs> changing the attention span of our children, changing our conversations, our love lives. It goes on and on. We are taking on so much water because of the way the digital commons is coming to replace the standard commons that we knew at the town square. Every aspect, aspect by aspect, is becoming its digital alternative in full. So if we're taking on that much water, we might as well count what are the benefits that the digital age brings us. And one of the things it's done is it's shaken loose the sclerosis that uh, collected over decades of essentially market-driven lengths, market-driven concepts of how long you have for a television show in between toothpaste commercials, how long feature films can be run. I own a theater. I know that I don't like movies over two hours because basically it's hard to, ch to schedule three of them in a night, so they're setting a max length. In other places, you have minimum lengths. All those lengths that used to confront us, of course, are made academic by the digital world where there's a democracy of lengths. There's a biodiversity in lengths of content and, and processing of subject matter. I was in Berlin a week ago, and I listened to a, a, a concerto concert in a crazy hall, and it was wonderful. The first piece came on, and it was long, and it had that thing where there are movements, and I always think I'm supposed to clap, and everybody doesn't clap, and I'm like watching everyone for signals. They kept not clapping, and then this, and they got to the end of one, and I was vaguely sure that we were supposed to be clapping. So I led the clapping, like which was pretty risky, right? And I was right, so everyone clapped. I think I was right, at least no complaints. But I remember thinking in the middle of that thing, this thing had a really interesting thing up front, and I've been sitting through the rest of this space filling for like 30 minutes now. 
I don't think this composer really had his heart. It was Brahms. I don't think he had his heart in the rest of this, but the length of the time was as Brahms. it was. You're well, just for today, Brahms. just for today. I love the rest, but there was, and I just would say we are, we have been put for decades in situations where movies that are full length, you sometimes sit there and go, this was a great short. This would have been a wonderful short story. And then sometimes somebody has the vision like Rear Window was based on a short story. And somehow Kubrick, uh, um, Hitchcock had the vision to see, oh, what a length I could make of this. That can happen. But by and large, this has removed, I think, the tyranny of market-driven forces over the length of communication so that something is palpably communicated at the, at the length in form that the content requires. To tell someone to go fight a brush fire in, in two hours, to tell them that people are dying somewhere in the world and there's an emergency in two hours, often ought to be done in three minutes and the rest of the, of the two hours ought to be spent on organizing where to get the pitchforks. Yeah, the film, the film needs to be the right length for the story and I think that's the important thing to remember. And so many, uh, so many of my friends... Um, or I love, um, I love being in the editing room for documentaries and um, I love um, giving feedback notes to uh, my friends who have uh, documentaries in the editing room. And I just shudder. My, the, the feeling that um, is the worst feeling for me is when I'm looking at this film and I want to say, this is an incredible... 30-minute film, like, what the hell are you thinking? People are going to spend 90 or worse minutes with it for what... Um, uh, have you looked out there? <laughs> um, you know, and, um, uh, and... And I think it's exciting. I think shorts are the new long in the sense that there are these avenues now. I think they used to be shorts. I think, you know, back in the day... Um, actually, I think at the beginning of film or with shorts playing in front of features, there were more opportunities... Um, uh, for shorts back in the day, and I think for 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 a while there, there weren't any opportunities for shorts, and now I feel like it is much more vital, and I think there's so much, there's all kinds of There's new so opportunities. many opportunities, but I want everybody in this room to get paid. I think that's priority that I have. You should applaud that. Because uh, I really, I really want you to get paid, and I want us all. And so it's like I feel like there's a lot of advantages to shorts, and I think that um, it. it it's coming around. You've got, you know, Alex is doing this New Yorker um, series of shorts, and I think it is being monetized. And this is just to clarify, Alex Gibney is uh, producing this um, series on Amazon.com. Uh, right. uh, with the New Yorker. For, with the New Yorker. It's like a half-hour kind of anthology of short films that sort of reflect New Yorker content. Exactly, and I just want to, I, I'm glad that the industry is catching up and, and, and learning how to compensate everybody for their work um, because I, I hear a lot of people making shorts and they've put their life savings into it and sometimes you do have to do that to get your calling card, I understand, to show people you have talent, to rise above the rest, I get it, but I just, I, I, I'm sort of watching with a little bit of trepidation, you just want to make sure that this format, which is the new long, um, is also being appreciated um, by the, that in the commerce areas. And I, I hope that that follows soon so that everybody can really do their work and uh, not have to have six jobs. Just a tiny bit of shop talk. We had, uh, uh, the three of us, Lucy, Heidi, and I, had a little debate beforehand because apparently Lucy was responsible for the subtitle short films or the new long. Heidi said she didn't agree with it. I got out, I didn't comment. But now that I look at it, um, I think I would fall on the side of, I think, I think Lucy is right. I think you also just endorsed Lucy. I think Lucy's right, but I think it's, I, it, I would have to parenthetically say they are the new long if 
What we mean by the new long is these movies that we make in long form, once upon a time, in a highly oppressive television environment and theatrical environment controlled by major distributors and exhibitors who had a huge financial uh, barrier to entry on us, we were the sort of scrappy gazelles that went around that and raised money by committing crimes and uh, maxing out credit cards, and so we could make things that were ornery and defiant of pre-existing norms, if that's what those longs were, those longs have now to an extent become an industry where I'm up against length expectations, grandeur expectations, I'm supposed to outdo my last serious film each time, and so then the only scrappy thing I can do is go right to the jugular of the human race and not really play with the middleman, which makes getting paid complicated. Okay. It, only, it means you have to get into the channels where there are existing pay models, YouTube and others for channeling and things like that, and that's hard for young people who are just brand new at it. So my only advice is the great thing about short films for people who are also starting out is of course the barrier to entry economically is much lower if you think about Lucy with just her DP and somebody cutting it and you can make something now that's because she's an artist who already is practiced at this but a young person who has an exuberant idea can get over just like all of us share videos around at a rate I mean I have more memories from the last year of things I was sent virally than I do of things I sat in a movie seat for and that is a, an incredible paradigm shift that invites people with a creative spirit to no longer try like heck to get over that Hollywood barrier or get over the indie movie barrier, but instead say, let me hill climb my way there because incidentally, while I hill climb my way there, the little things I make, there's now an infrastructure for sometimes preposterously wide dissemination of those things. You bring an interesting thing up when you say the things that you remember most of the last year that been these, not for me. You know, I get bombarded uh, with hundreds of bite-sized pieces of media every single day, like every everybody here, um, and I don't remember a lot of them. Uh, our, our, our film's gonna be on Upworthy, I'm excited about that. We'll get millions of hits in February, we the one we have here. Wow, I'm excited to see what happens. And But you know, the films that stick with me the most are the ones that I've sat in the dark, or in my house, or in a theater, and I've um, been allowed to understand and ask questions and think in between scenes. I, I think feature length is essential to a strong intellectual life among all of us, and I, I really think there's room for both. Oh. But in terms of memory, and, and staying with staying with you for a, a long period of time, I just think uh, I just don't know if that if, if these things are sticking with people. I just I just it's hard I, to know. I, I see I see it as an ecosystem, and there's like uh, you know I I, I um, and I think yeah for me Citizen Four and this great feature work really is is ultimately I think still the ultimate, but um, there are so many short pieces as well and. I also think, you know, actually as a woman, as a um, scrappy person, as um, uh, an artist, um, as somebody who, who had to scramble up with no connections or whatever in this incredibly you know, tight bottleneck of this crazy industry that we're in, I actually think short form economically, um, again, kind of aside, actually there are opportunities to develop. I don't think you can, I mean, some people can, um, uh, Eugene, your brother Andrew is probably, that's your brother Andrew who made Capturing the Freedmen's first time out, right? Okay, there are exceptions that prove the rule. Sometimes people, people can make astounding first features having never um, made anything before. But I think generally you have to learn so much. And I also think there are new opportunities. I, is that, um, did I see Charlie from The Guardian out there? And the Opdocs, I think some of these, I mean, Opdocs is a tremendously interesting yeah. success story. 
Um, so many of these films are beautiful, really get seen. I remember Judith Helfand's beautiful film about her mom um, that played on Mother's Day last year, and just lovely. And I think there's all these opportunities. They're not going to make you rich, these films, but they are these opportunities, but they're going to pay, they're going to cover your costs, they're going to give you opportunities to just sketch. Um, uh, and there might be a full painting. I'm really encouraging, for example, Judith to make a, a feature out of that project that started out as a kind of scratch pad short and for Opdocs. And I don't know if you guys know Opdocs. It's the New York Times is doing short documentary films um, called Jason Springerkopf. I'll give you his email after. <laughs> um, he's good, actually uh, is, has started this uh, very interesting series. We've done, Rachel and I have done two Opdocs. And, you know, it is, um, in a way, it's preaching to the choir because you're dealing with um, smart, educated liberal people who are like-minded. So you are, that's the audience you're reaching when you do with the New York Times Opdocs, and, and that's, that's wonderful. Um, I think that I would like to see that kind of content um, go across maybe less, uh, less rarefied platforms, you know? Like, like, and I think, that's, I think things like you know, Upworthy is, they, sometimes they do things that are smart, sometimes they do silly stuff. So I, I would like to see the democratization of ideas across people that might not have ever run into an opdoc. You know, it's interesting to me that you bring up Citizen Four because in a way the material Citizen Four started as a, as a short. There was that first incredible video that Laura shot of Edward Snowden that came out in, uh, in 2013 and, uh, and, you know, really changed minds all over the world um, about that subject. And, and, I, and you might have had a question before Citizen Four, well, is this feature-length film going to be able to tell us anything new? I mean, the Edward Snowden story has been uh, reported from all angles. And, of course, uh, Citizen Four, for anyone who's seen it, you know that uh, there's incredible uh, nuance and interest and, um, and, and new things you learn no matter how closely you followed uh, the Edward Snowden story. Well... I don't want to just defend myself against Heidi suggesting that I don't like long-form films because I do still like them. But I would say that this Citizen Four model is the perfect one to focus on because each object had its place. Each object had its place in its time. The first one shot a warning shot across the bow of the Central Authority to say, we are loaded for bear on this subject of NSA releases, and we're now going to watch you go crazy to try to stop the bleeding, and it'll be fun to watch you. And then after we've watched you for a while, we'll then release a thing that undermines whatever mythology you've now spun to vilify this guy. So you didn't get the sense in the piece on TV, and I don't know how calculated this was by Laura and her team, but the net calculation reveals that there was calculation. You look at the first thing, he's just a very news-grabbing fellow in that first interview. It's only in the movie that you say, oh, I see, he's an incredibly magnetic, likable person who does not seem like he could tell a lie if he tried, and therefore, this is taking on more momentum than ever before. I had this with my little Move Your Money. The Move Your Money piece, as I say, was a hatchet job on the Frank Capra movie, It's a Wonderful Life, and I have been trying to plagiarize Capra's It's a Wonderful Life in every movie I've ever made. In fact, he's in every movie I've ever made, including I stole his title for one of them. So when I finally got the chance here, I was like, well, I've been waiting to make It's a Wonderful Life for years, and I have all these like Hollywood schemes about how to do that in the modern era. Why don't I just do a hatchet job on it, a tiny little thing? But of course, when I step back and watch it and I see what it does to It's a Wonderful Life, what's great about It's a Wonderful Life is the wonderful parts of the nuances in that movie. And so that's been lost by the wayside, and so one day I'll have to make that movie. I know that hasn't been extinguished. It's just I'm firing kind of test cases. It's almost like a Petri dish of developing a larger 
a larger um, lane. The Laura Poitras example is really good for Citizen Four because she did an op docs or a couple um, with different material, sort of as she was in production, and would release little 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 tidbits. And so I I like that. That model makes me happy. So you're in the middle of an awesome feature length documentary film, and as you go with, with an urgency, you release miniature versions of it along the way because that satisfies sort of everything, you know. Yeah, that's what I'm doing right now. Actually, I'm making my new film is about uh, creativity. Um, which is, uh, I could bore you with for hours and I won't now, um, but hopefully I'll finish it one day, although I may not because it's so interesting, I don't ever really want to kind of stop. But um, the plan for that, there's somewhat of a pressure to be creative in our distribution of it because uh, it's about creativity, so no pressure, right? We have to make a creative film and distribute it creatively and uh, like look creative and stuff. So, um, uh, but the thing that we've, we're doing is is a little crazy, but I'm. Uh, uh, but hey, so is creativity, right? It's controlled weirdness. So we are going to be really weird, and we're gonna. There is going to be no such thing as the monolithic film. There are just going to be loads of iterations and versions. It's kind of a modular format, and we're going to drop pieces of it in different places. And we have kind of aggressive versioning, and we can premiere one version and then maybe switch out different versions or play different combinations of pieces in different places. And it's going to be really fun to experiment with that. Um, because uh, what is it in this day and age to have one monolithic film exactly? And maybe it would be fun, especially because we have this very modular format, to just really, um, uh, uh, really push the extent to which, and it's kind of like a, a film, it's like a project with many manifestations and also follow-up opportunities and stuff across different, um, uh, across different, um, all kinds of different ways of reaching people. So we have about 12 minutes left. Um, if there, we have a microphone, if there's anyone in the audience who has experience with short films, wants to ask a question. Uh, uh, so we have a friend from the, the Guardian here. Do you want to talk about what the Guardian is doing with, uh, with short films? Uh, we've got a microphone right here for you. Again, just uh, introduce yourself. And... Okay. Hey, everyone. So um, I'm Charlie. I'm head of documentaries at The Guardian. Um, we've started a new initiative um, that is going to involve commissioning uh, short-form documentaries for our website. And the idea is that every single Monday there'll be a new short-form doc going up on our site. So that is 52 documentaries a year. It really is. It's going to take a while to commission them all, but that's the idea. Um, some of them will be the op-docs model of um, short-form versions of feature docs. Some of them will be original commissions of short docs. Um, but I'd just like to echo a lot of the things that have been said on the panel about this being a major opportunity for um, anyone out there who's developing a feature documentary but is, is, is terrified of the thought of spending three years with no one seeing any of that content. Like we're offering a platform for people to actually see that short form version. It's an audience building exercise. It's a great way to kind of start having impact with them. Um, so that's what we're trying to do. We've got the first few docs up on site at the moment. Um, and the thing that we can offer, I mean, we, are, we have a, like an okay budget for it. Um, and I agree with filmmakers getting paid, but what we have is an absolutely massive audience. Um, and I'd kind of take issue slightly with what Heidi said about it being like platforms like the New York Times and The Guardian being a rarefied audience. I think the readers of those newspapers are rarefied, but actually when you're talking about like 
50 million website visitors a month. That is actually quite a diverse audience. That's a lot of people. It's probably more people and a more diverse set of people than are going to see it when it goes out on TV. So um, I, you know, follow what we're doing. We're taking pictures at the moment, and uh, I think what we're doing is quite exciting, but then I would say that. <laughs> uh, anyone else out there in the audience who's working uh, on sorts of with a hand up over there? We'll get you a microphone and a hat. Hello. So my question is, um, with um, basically you have a platform on the internet for YouTube. Um, well, we have YouTube, right? And you can put your short film on there if you want to. And I understand that um, a lot of different film festivals don't accept um, don't accept them that they're on YouTube or on the internet or anything like that. And what do you think the the future is for um, film festivals and short films? I guess what I'm trying with that with that uh, availability with it. Katie, I'm going to go to you for that question. Could you just repeat the last question? So the, 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 the question was, uh, how do film festivals treat short fil films that are already on a digital oh, platform? Right. Yeah. I what's understand the, you probably wouldn't show something that's all, that we could be watching on YouTube. Well, with Sundance, we've always had a very open policy. With We've had a non-exclusive policy for short films. So we accept films that are already online. And I think that's where film festivals can really help because you can use the PR engine of the festival and the exposure to really drive audiences towards the film online. So we're very supportive of films that are already online. Some festivals aren't. So would you so. say put your movie on the Internet first? Um, what you could do is, is upload it... it what I'm saying is it wouldn't be a problem if it was up, up there first, but it, what a good strategy might be is to put it up just towards the end of the festival um, when there's a lot of um, buzz around, around the films, and um, that, that, that would be a good way to draw audiences towards it. Great, thank you. You know, there are certainly a number of film festivals that probably would not accept a submission that's already uh, online, yeah, so, the, the, so you should be mindful to do of is, that. Is do your research so you know and have a, have a strategy in place. All right, uh, I see your hand up over here, if we can get him the microphone. Hi, uh, my name is Robert. Um, I'm a filmmaker from Whittier, California. I have a question um, about production-wise. Uh, about a year ago, uh, I was shooting this short film and uh, had everybody scheduled, but at the last minute, everybody on set walked out because last-minute uh, schedulings happened. I want to know, like, um, well, from what I did, I kept going. But I wanted to know, like, do you think it's a good thing to keep the production going? Or should, they, should, they, should you just cancel pro the production and just reschedule everybody until we have a green uh, It's kind of a question time. about managing crews. And maybe when you're yeah. making short films, it's, especially if you're doing it on a low budget, it's, it's yeah. extra fraud. <laughs> so from you veterans, how do you keep it? Firm this grip is over a your crew. You were making, and everybody could know. No, it's it's a, it's a straight up narrative. Okay. Um, we don't care about that. <laughs> okay. Well, if it's if it well in a documentary I'd standpoint, say, I'd say um, yeah, I'd say in documentary world, uh, some of my best. I'm just going to. I don't know if this helps in your specific. You know, sometimes, you know, if you've got no camera and nobody there, then it's going to be tricky to make a film. But I do right. think in general, you know, I really embrace curveballs. I really try to. I've learned that sometimes the best um, possible things happen in unexpected ways. And if you can just um, uh, not have a panic attack and keep filming, yeah. sometimes you know that's gonna be the best stuff. And, and um, I'd say keep going, um, like, 
Um, like in life in general, I see Al Hicks somewhere around. I'm just going to quote. It's the middle Al. there. Yeah, there Keep you go. On Keep on keeping on, Al keeping Hicks. On. Yeah. This is the uh, theme song of the documentary filmmaker. Um, but uh, okay. I just walked in here. <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. I just walked in here, and I'm, you guys were talking about short films. I had no idea you guys were talking about documentaries. But, um, but Don't on ever work with that crew again. If they walked out on you, they never get to work with you again, especially when they make it that. big. That's oh, so uncool. Um, uh, but to go on both, to go on both shorts, narratives, and documentaries. documentaries. You don't need a crew. It's better. It's actually even if you don't have any friends at Skeleton all, you can kind of keep doing it. My, my curious question is, um, if you want to get a hold of a copyrighted song, where should one, uh, what should one do, or what should, where should one go in order to obtain a rights a for a song answer. for Let's both the documentaries? Go to Moby gratis and use Moby for free. Or go to Creative Commons or talk to us after. That's a long story. Yeah. Okay. All right, we've got time for one more question. This woman right here. Hi, I'm Molly Murphy. I co-direct Working Films, and for 15 years we've used documentaries to engage people in issues that impact their lives. We've done that traditionally with feature-length documentaries, but in the last year we started working with shorts, and what we found is a really pretty uh, extreme shift in uh, audience reaction. Nobody leaves when the lights come up. They've come out for an event, um, and they stay. So they have better opportunity to connect with other people in their community, to connect with host organizations, to take action right there. And so we're just really excited by the increase in attention. And we are totally behind sh short films are the new long. We love long films, too, still. And for people who want to know more about Working Films... You go to workingfilms.org. We're about to have a new website in the next... It yeah. should be up in the next month. I think it's so. I, I think you're right. I think we have these amazing cameras now, and we have amazing non-linear editing, and we can make stuff that looks beautiful, and then we can craft the crap out of it in the editing room, and make something really strong in the format of short documentaries um, that people will really engage. And I and I actually look at all the Vice and all the Opdocs and stuff, and I think, oh my god. I mean, partly I think, oh my god, there's like a hundred million talented people. There's no longer like only a hundred documentary filmmakers on the planet. Like we're in trouble look at all these amazingly talented people like um uh but it's so exciting there's amazingly talented people who are like honing their skills and learning and growing and there's amazing audiences that are able to tune in and there's amazing document it's an amazing amazing time to be making documentaries um as we uh, start to wind up here i want to let you know that on sundance now it's doc club uh starting uh january 29th um uh, next thursday uh, we're going to have a selection of uh, past Sundance short documentaries online, curated by Mike Plant, one of the uh, documentary short programmers uh, here. So check that out next Thursday on docclub.com uh, or download our app. Uh, again, if those of you who came late, you can get more information about Doc Club uh, over there. I want to give a special thanks to the head of AMC Networks, Josh Sapan, who's been a huge supporter of Doc Club. Uh, <laughs> Thank you, Josh. And uh, yes, and, and well, I, I want to, yeah, 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 go, you start with you, Gotta Heidi. i plug it one more time. Wednesday, 4 p.m. at the Holiday Free, it's a free event, and it's uh, 71 minutes, nine short films, and I think they're doing it again next year, so it might be interesting for you to see what was done this year and possibly get involved next year. Four o'clock, Holiday Wednesday. And Eugene, the film you executive uh, produced, Terror, is playing tonight? It debuts at six o'clock today, yeah. Yeah, and for people who want to follow some of the short films that you've done, is there a central place they can go to? Yes, if they go to Drug War Movie, 
that's where we really centralize all of our films. So from there, you can link to a lot of that work we've been doing. Can I give a plug to somebody that's not me, but it's, it's helpful for people to look at? Um, one thing that we didn't say today, and it's a very simple thought, is if you're looking to um, communicate about a subject that interests you and you think that your resources and your mental inclination is to do it short, it's very often interesting to look in the ecosystem of who are the grassroots groups, the NGO groups and, and, and pre pressure groups that are already working in that space because they all need small deployable video that they can use to do direct attacks on things. And very often they'll become this sort of, when, when Hadi talks about these advertisers that want you to do stuff and it's a slippery slope, that's a huge, uh, concern. But I think if you go to like an ACLU and you're me and you're trying to fight stop and frisk in New York, you can find a joint venture with them and then you're making a film that already is custom tailored for a particular use. And this is specific to the try to change the world films. So one place to look is a thing called Global Media Health Project. This is literally somebody I met in Vermont three years ago who said I want to make films that are little tiny films shot in foreign countries where in the country you're showing a woman how to birth a child. You're showing a woman what does a child look like who has jaundice. Like little tiny, incredibly usable education films that women in the third world, women in foreign countries that don't have adequate healthcare systems can literally get. And I've seen the metrics on how these are being deployed. It, make, it fills me with pride at what they're doing. And there wasn't an ounce of vanity in it. It was just the, these things are needed here. There's a need. Let me join with the organization. So go look at that, because it's a good example of something that'll show you, like, it doesn't have to be elegant and beautiful and whatever. And some of them actually are. The guy who made Waltz with Bashir, who animated, animated one. They're quite amazing, but they're tiny, and they really hit a point yeah. that you didn't know. Cholera. And, what um, do you do to fix and, cholera? And, and my um, film Lion's Mouth Open started out as an opportunity to raise awareness for Huntington's disease in partnership with the Huntington Disease Society of America, and the fact that it's a uh, one best short at cinema I honors was unbelievably unexpected and marvelous. But the Huntington's Disease Society of America is so excited to have this content, and also, actually, in terms of constructing events, um, I mean, deployable is such an interesting thing. Different people need different things. I think if you're how to recognize your child has jaundice, a short piece on, uh, online is great. For someone like the Huntington's Disease Society of America, a half-hour film is awesome because you can have a screening and then sure. an e organize an evening around it. Whereas we did a lot of brain injury events around the crash reel, for example. But if you've got an hour and 47-minute film, we actually wound up having to do a cut-down version so that we could do um, traumatic brain injury society group screenings. Um, it's and a great suggestion yeah. as well, what you say, because they might not have thought about making a film. Right. So if you find partners that make sense and approach them and say, listen, let's work together, it might be a, a way to, to at least pay your expenses of your film, do something good for them, you guys are on the same page. I think that's a really, really clever, uh, scrappy and idea. Yeah. And make a really good film, because I feel like they know they don't want the same boring content right. that no one wants to watch. They want to actually partner with a really good filmmaker who can make something that's actually really beautiful to watch. Katie, uh, some of the short documentaries that are playing here at the Sundance Film Festival, uh, can you give a plug to when those are playing here? Um, I don't have my schedule on me. There's two programs. And, um, schedule. Ske <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's two programs, um, one of which uh, has two schedule. long docs. So one's 40 minutes and one's 50 minutes. Um, and the other has um, a more varied collection. And they're both well worth watching, so you must go and check Shorts them out. Shorts are so good at Sundance. The shorts yeah. at Sundance, no one realizes how good they are. <laughs> They're, if you're ever in doubt about what to see, go to see the shorts. They short better be films. good if like 3,000 have been rejected. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, they are. It was 8,000, and we've programmed 60. 8,000? So. 
Um, I invite you to come back to the Sundance uh, TV headquarters uh, every day at noon. I'll be back here on Monday with the Black Lives on Film panel and on Wednesday with the Documenting Celebrities panel. Thanks to the team here at Sundance TV and thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Thank you.